What's up, everybody? How we doing? You guys doing good? Listen, I really feel the weight of, of being a Bible ter- teacher oftentimes deals in, in saying hard truths to people. And that's precisely what I'm going to do tonight. Hard truth. The first hard truth that I have for you is that y'all need a shower. Okay? Like, like it, it's hot in here. And the last two nights I didn't notice, but tonight, whoo, so for the good of your counselors, take a shower, okay? All right. And all God's people said. (laughs) All right. All jokes aside. All jokes aside, I I have one goal tonight. The goal that I have tonight is to clearly and plainly articulate to us as people in this chapel the one thing that keeps us from God. The one thing that gets in between us and God. And the Bible calls that sin. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at a character that we've just kind of briefly touched on throughout our time in the book of Daniel, and it's King Nebuchadnezzar, okay? King Nebuchadnezzar. That's who we're going to unpack because King Nebuchadnezzar gets so close so many times but misses the point because of the sin in his life. And so that's the passage that we're going to look at tonight. It's in Daniel chapter 4. Turn there, if you will. Turn to Daniel chapter 4. And as has been our our tradition so far, I'm going to read a lot to you because I want you guys to hear this This story that we're going through this week, this historical narrative, I want you to hear it in in totality during your time at camp, okay? And so I'm going to start reading. You ready? Now we're talking. It's my man right there. Let's do this. All right, it goes like this. Read along with me or listen to these words. Here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar. To the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, and had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. 
These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. The vision I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, trim off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. And let the stump and its roots be bound in iron and bronze and remained in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because of the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time. And his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let this dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its tops touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing fruit for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump and its tree at, at its root means that your kingdom will be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign over all the kingdom on earth and gives to them what anyone wishes." Immediately, what has been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, 
and he was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claw of a bird. That was a lot. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you again with the same prayer we've prayed every night this week. That you would be revealing more of your good nature and holy character to us as we unpack your word tonight. Lord God, as we talk about sin and the weight of it, the repercussions, the consequences of it, would you remind us that it's your kindness that draws us to repentance, Lord? That your good and holy character is what offered up your son Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. And so as we talk about hard things that may trigger or stir up emotion in our own hearts, would you help us to look to you as our only hope? We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's the deal. I'm convinced after spending 36 years on earth, some of you are like, he's only 36? He looks so old. I'm convinced... I'm convinced, I'm convinced that there are only two types of people on earth. Two. Not three, not four, not five, not six, but two. There are those who think that In-N-Out is the superior fast food chain. And there are those who believe that Chick-fil-A is all that is good and holy in the world. But as for me, but as for me and my family, but as for me and my family, we worship the Lord, so Chick-fil-A it is, okay? All right. And I'm going to pray for you if you disagree. I'm praying for you. Time out. So there is a day where my wife was out of town. There's a day where my wife was out of town, and uh, I, a much younger father than I am today, was in charge of what we like to call daddy duty, okay? And daddy duty meant that I... Was, uh, was, was, was uh, a one-man show against an army of people that I created, okay? And so the morning went fine. We watched cartoons, we played cars, the kids, the kids had breakfast, the kids watched a show, everyone's alive, no one's bleeding, things are good. And I had this idea at about 10.45, and the idea was, I'll take the kids to the happiest place on earth. Chick-fil-A. Hey, hey, don't let, don't, don't let me lose you here, okay? And so I have four kids. I have a boy, a girl, a boy, and a girl. And so the oldest can get dressed and put his shoes on by himself, no problem. The second oldest can put her shoes on and get dressed with even, li- even less problems than the oldest. The youngest, the youngest... The youngest needs some help, but the older two have her wrapped around, she has them wrapped around her finger, so she's covered. It's that youngest boy that was giving me problems on this day. Shoes are on the wrong feet, hair is unkept, 
But I figure it doesn't matter. Mom's not home. You know what I mean? Like, it's all good. We'll have the hair done before mom gets home. Let's just go get some holy chicken. And so I tell the kids, I say, here's the deal. Dad's going to take you to Chick-fil-A. But what I need you guys to do is I need you to get ready so that we can go to Chick-fil-A. We good? We're good. All right, let's go. And so I, I go out to the garage. I set out their shoes. Kid number one comes out. Shoes on, opens door, gets in the car. Boom, one out of four. Kid two comes out, puts on her shoes, opens the door, gets in the car, buckles her car seat. Boom, we're done. To my surprise, kid number four comes out. She gets her shoes on, gets in the car. I help her with her car seat because she was younger at the time. Oh my gosh, this is the perfect day. And so I waited about 30, maybe 45 seconds, and I'm like, where's kid number three? What is going on? And then as I'm sitting there wondering what's happening, I see the doorknob that goes from the laundry room into the garage start to wiggle, like that scene in Jurassic Park when the raptors come into the kitchen, right? And I'm like, oh boy, this is going to be good. Should I help him? This is the difference between moms and dads, right? The difference between moms and dads are, I'm not going to help you. You're going to get in the car. We're going to Chick-fil-A. Moms are much more compassionate, caring, and kind than dads, okay? And so eventually... Eventually, kid number three opens the door and comes out with a look of dismay on his face. And I'm trying to realize why he couldn't open the door when I look in his hands and he has two fistfuls of toys. So he's trying to open the door with the, with the toys in his hands and he figured it out. I'm like, whatever, let's figure it out, you know? And so he walks up to his shoes and he does what every little boy does. He stuffs his chubby, cute little kid feet into the toes of his shoes, and he just starts like he's squishing a bug, wiggling his foot in there, wiggling his foot in there, wiggling his foot in there. And the thought crossed my mind, should I help him? Nah, he's got this figured out. Next foot, stuffed, wiggle, 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 wiggle. He's just trying to get that shoe on like he's putting out a bug. Wiggle, wiggle, gets it on. And then I go, this is going to be good. Let's see how he gets in the car. And so he walks up to the side of our family car, and with his cute, chubby little hands full of toys, he kind of tries to jog life the, the car handle. And he tries to open it. Mind you, he hasn't dropped the toy. It was like kind of an incredible scene going on. And I'm just watching this whole thing happen. The car is running. We're ready to go. And I'm watching. And after three minutes of this little kid trying to get the car door open, I realize it's not going to happen on its own. And so I just kind of from inside the car just unlatched the back a little bit and then boom, he pulls it open after asking me like 10 times for help. He gets the car door open. He gets in the car and now for the final, some would say the most important step, it comes to the car seat. And so he gets into the car seat and he can't buckle it on his own and so he goes, dad, will you help me? Now I'm all about hard lessons in life. So I go, dude, you got to do this one on your own. And he goes, Dad, come on, you got to help me. I go, you got to release the toys because I'm not letting my toys go. Can you help me buckle my seatbelt? I go, then I'm a, I'm, I'm a no too. If you're a no, I'm a no. And after like four minutes of me as like a 30-something-year-old man debating a four-year-old, he finally gets his car seat on and off we go to Chick-fil-A. Now, I share that story for a couple reasons. One, I want you guys to really go home knowing that Chick-fil-A is the best fast food, okay? But two, but two, but two, that story 
that illustration, that example of him getting so close but so far because he refused to release what was in his hands. He refused to release this treasure that he had is exactly what we see happening in this passage with King Nebuchadnezzar. Like if you think back through each of the three chapters we've studied, Nebuchadnezzar has already had a dream interpreted. And at, that, at the interpretation of that dream, to his own admission, he goes, your God must be amazing. Well, we see, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rescued in the fiery furnace. And it's Nebuchadnezzar himself who goes, whoa, there's a fourth person in the fire. He looks like the son of the gods. So close, yet so far. And then we get to chapter four. And I'm not gonna reread the entire chapter for you because it was a lot, but let's just kind of summarize and really unpack what is getting in the way for Nebuchadnezzar of finally acknowledging that the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the one true God. He's seen miracles. He's watched this God move before his very eyes, but that thing that he has getting in the way of him acknowledging the one true God in his life is still an idol for him. And so we pick it up at verse four. At verse four, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar's at, at home lying in bed when he has this vision, he has this dream. And it's this dream of a giant tree that reaches the heavens. And that tree is then chopped down. And then that tree is trimmed, all the branches, all the fruit is tossed aside and scattered. And then the stump of that tree is set up like some type of memorial. Nebuchadnezzar, in his arrogance, Nebuchadnezzar, in his narcissism, assumes that he is the focal point of this story. Friend, your sin will do that to you. Your sin will make you selfish. Your sin will make you prideful. Sin has a way of making us take the focus off of God and putting it onto ourselves. Some would say that pride is the root of all sin. That pride is, 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 is Eve in the garden saying, why can't I eat that fruit? Why couldn't I do that if I wanted to? I know this to be true in my own life. The times where I dishonor God, the times where I do my own thing, it's because I've replaced the place of God in my own heart with what I want when I want it, even if it's bad for me. Even if God has already said that's not gonna be good for you. Later on in chapter four, we see in verse nine that Daniel, known as Belshazzar in Babylon, goes to the king and, and interprets this dream for the king. And what he tells him is like, yes, this dream is real that you've had, but the issue with this dream that you've had is because you've continued to turn your back on the one true God, you're the tree. You're going to be chopped down. You're going to eat grass like a cow. You're going to be covered in dew. You're the one that's going to be scattered because your pride has separated you from knowing God. If you remember two days ago, we talked about this very real temptation that exists for those of us who spend a lot of time in church. And it's the temptation to replace knowing God with knowing about God. When we play that temptation out, what happens is we become people who know so much about God that that knowledge of God has replaced having a very real and very personal relationship with God in the first place. 
In the New Testament, we see examples given of these men called Pharisees. And these Pharisees were like the most, air quote, godly people alive at that time. They knew their Bibles inside and out. They would rebuke and judge others. Like they loved the Bible so much that they would have little headbands with Bible verses on them. They loved praying so much that they would have these long tassels coming out of their robes that they would kind of move and play with and draw attention to themselves as they would pray. But time and time again throughout the New Testament, as you read it, as you study it in the years that God gives you here on earth, you'll see that the people in the New Testament who are furthest from God are the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees replaced knowing God with knowing a lot about God. They thought that was a fair trade. Nebuchadnezzar's doing the same thing. He's acknowledged God time and time again in the four chapters that we've read. He's acknowledged God's miracles time and time again in the four chapters that we've read. But you know what Nebuchadnezzar has not done? What Nebuchadnezzar has not done is repent of his sin and turn towards God. Look at the end of Daniel's kind of word to him. The end of Daniel's word to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27 is, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Nebuchadnezzar's given a chance in this moment after Daniel interprets another one of his dreams to turn from his selfish, prideful ways towards the one true God who he himself has seen time and time again do miraculous, incredible, amazing things. The book of James, chapter 316, you don't have to turn here, I'll read it for you, but the book of James, chapter 3, verse 16 says this. James 3.16 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. I'll read it again. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. What that verse is expressing and communicating to us is in our own hearts and in our own lives where we allow envy, that is jealousy or the desire to be puffed up, to have more power, to be liked, to be loved for unhealthy and selfish reasons, where you have selfish ambition, where you make yourself the main character. I know you guys are aware of what that means. We do this time and time again in our lives where we pretend as though we are the main character of the story, and in doing so, we overlook every single other human in our lives who is around us. Friend, you are not the main character of your story. God is. And God has invited you to go on this journey with him, allowing him to bear the weight of your life on his shoulders, because remember, take heart, I have overcome the world. God is inviting you to be in relationship with him. But just like my son wanting to go to Chick-fil-A and having something in the way, sin is the thing that we have in the way. I've used that word a few times. And I don't want to pretend that we all know what it means because this is a church camp. Because I realize that some of you, maybe a good portion of you that are here this week, have not really spent time in church. This just seemed like a fun opportunity and a friend invited you. By the way, if that's you... Can I just commend you for your courage? 
Like, if you're here this week and you're not a Christian, this is now like the fourth night in a row that we've talked about a lot of concepts for Christians. And you may have a lot more questions than you have answers. I want to just applaud you if you're one of those people. No, 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 not like that. I don't want you to raise your hand. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if you're here and you're not a believer, way to have courage to show up. And it's okay to have questions. And if you're here as a Christian and you just kind of have found yourself in church since you were a baby, like I want to I applaud you and encourage you for your ability to show up and to learn hard things because this concept of sin is a ginormous thing that we have to tackle in order to get to the goodness and the grace of God. Sin is the thing getting in between us and God. And the example that we have is King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar is given multiple opportunities to repent and turn until Daniel finally says, you're the tree that's going to be chopped down because of your selfishness and your pride. And so what is sin? Sin could be defined two ways. I'll give you two definitions for sin. The first one's kind of long. Sin could be defined as any thought, deed, word, attitude, or action that goes against God's good and perfect character. That's a long answer. Let me give you a short answer. If God is holy, that means perfect and set apart, then sin is any time we are unholy. Sin is any time we do things that would be considered unholy. Anytime we lie, anytime we gossip, anytime we look at pornography, anytime we disrespect our parents, anytime we steal, anytime we cheat. The Bible teaches that these sins have a lasting effect on us. And this concept of sin is something that goes all the way back to the beginning pages of your Bible. You see, friend, in in the book of Genesis, we read this on the first night. In the book of Genesis, God speaks and creates things into existence. And then he takes his time to form and fashion mankind. And he establishes a relationship with Adam and Eve, the first humans in the garden. And the basis of that relationship was that they get to be with God. His very presence is with them. And he says, but hey, I just have one thing I want you to know. The one thing that you can't do is you can't eat the the fruit off of that tree right there. The tree with the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else you can do. You have full freedom to do anything in this garden that you'd like to do except for that thing. And the Bible teaches that Satan himself in the form of a serpent came and tempted Adam and Eve. And the way that that temptation came to Adam and Eve was, did God really say that? Friend, any time a voice in your life begins to undermine the truths of God, don't listen to that voice. That voice, it means harm for you. That voice intends uh, uh, sin for you, evil for you. We can trust the words of God because God is good and holy and perfect. And, and, And one of the questions that I know a lot of you may have, because I had this question at your age as well, is, is why would God even allow sin in the first place? Like, why, why would God allow unholy, if he's holy, why would he allow unholy things? Have you ever thought that question? Why does God allow sin to exist? Anybody? Here's why God allowed sin to exist. Because God created humankind for one purpose, to be in relationship with him. God loves us. God wanted us to love him. But if God created us with only the ability to love him, is that really love? Or is love established through us having options, yet still choosing to love God? And so when given the option to choose God, Adam and Eve sinned. And the Bible teaches that in that moment, sin entered into the human reality. And just like height and hair color and eye color, skin tone, 
personality traits have been passed down through DNA, so has sin within human existence. There's this passage that we'll look at just a couple verses in tonight in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and it's going to tell us about sin. I want you to turn here with me. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. Side note. If you're looking for a verse that can help you understand the gospel, that can help you understand in just 10 verses what we're covering in six nights here at camp, Ephesians chapter 2 1 through 10 will do that through you. Study it in your own time. Memorize it. These verses hold the story of God in just 10 passages, okay? It says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul begins to talk to this New Testament church called Ephesus. And as he talks to them, he lets them know that before they knew Jesus, they were dead in their sin. And I'm sure many of you know this, but if you didn't know, the Bible was actually written in three primary languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. This passage itself was written in the Greek language. And so the reason we have a Bible in English is because people have studied the original language and translated as best as they could those words into English. And so when we take the word dead from its original word and translate it into English, it quite literally means no life, dead. An example I would give you is this. For my 35th birthday, my wife bought me a turtle. He was awesome. Yeah, he was really cool. The turtle's name was Donnie, okay? Uh, Was. Was. And so for about five months, I had just started my own, like, kind of company, nonprofit organization, so I, I didn't have coworkers. And so for five months, my best buddy, my secretary, my accountant, the person who balanced all my books was a little tiny turtle named Donnie, okay? And Donnie, the turtle, was awesome. And one weekend, I was up at a winter camp, helping out with a winter camp, and my wife called, and she said, hey, your turtle's not doing so good. And I was like, well, I know I've been, like, putting a lot of work on his table, but, like, what's the deal? Like, is he, does he need a vacation? Like, what's the word? She goes, no, he's dying. And I go, oh, no. The next day she calls, she goes, the turtle's dead. He's gone. He's, he's done. Turtle's dead. Now, how crazy would I be... How crazy would I be to come home to a dead turtle and think that like changing out the substrate in its its cage would bring it back to life? That would be kind of crazy, right? Like how crazy would I be to have a cage with a dead turtle and thinking that like if I put a new plant in there for it, that'll bring him back to life. That's what'll work. How crazy would I be to think that this dead turtle, well, he's dead, but he just needs some water. If he just had some water, like things would be okay. Even more so, how crazy would it be if I took this dead turtle and I just spray-painted him green again? Because by the time I got home, he was kind of gray and gross looking. If I just spray-painted him green and went, see, things are good. The picture that we get in Ephesians 2 is that we are dead. And the thing that we try to do because we are dead, because we are separated from God, the thing that we try to do is we try to work our way out of death. We try to do enough good things and think that will account for it. 
We try to spend enough time in church and think that, well, that covers the death that we have. Friend, dead things don't need to do good works. Dead things need to be brought back to life. And so what Paul is trying to tell the church in Ephesus is that you, apart from Christ, were dead. And the thing that has caused that death is your sin, the unholiness in your life. He goes on to say this. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. The way Paul describes sin is death. There's two passages, I'll read these for you, in the book of Romans that also deal with the topic of sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 say that for all have sinned, and as a result of that have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's reverse the tape for just a second as I wrap this message up. King Nebuchadnezzar was given multiple opportunities to turn from his sin and worship the one true God. King Nebuchadnezzar had multiple opportunities. And we looked at that one in in Daniel chapter 4, verses 27, where he says, listen, in order for this dream to not become a reality for you, In order for you to not be chopped down, what needs to happen is you need to repent and you need to turn towards God. And and friend, that's precisely the invitation for you this week at camp. If you have sin in your life, going to church is not going to solve the problem. If you have sin in your life, doing nice things for other people is not going to solve the problem. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do those things. I'm just saying if salvation is what you're looking for, trying to work yourself out of death will not answer the problem. Only Jesus can. And so I think there's two groups of people here tonight. There are those of you who came to camp this week having no idea what I'm talking about. And the truth I want you to walk out of here contemplating is what if I'm right? What if these verses are right? What if that hollow, empty feeling that you feel sometimes could actually be a void that God would love to fill? What if that fear and that anxiety that you have over living for something bigger than your life could be found in the person of Jesus? What if? If you've never given your life to Jesus, I want you to just... Ask that question of yourself. Wrestle with it with a counselor. What if that's true? And for those of you who are Christians, who still continually sin, I want you to hear two things. One, that's normal. We are not perfect. God is perfect. But two, that's no excuse to continue doing things that you know you're not supposed to do. And so for those of you who are Christians, who find yourselves in a season of living for yourselves, 
a season of making yourself the main character. When that moment that you gave your life to Jesus, you declared he's now the main character in your life. Maybe the thing that's gotten in between you and God isn't the fact that you have questions and doubts about God. Maybe it's your sin and you need to deal with it. Maybe you need to confess that sin to your counselor or to a friend. Maybe you need to confess that sin to God and say, Lord, I have sinned. I have been unholy. Would you forgive me? Because guess what? No matter if you're someone who's far from God, never given your life to him, and you're wrestling with this question of sin, or you're someone who's walked with God for most of your life, but you feel like you're in a season of spiritual dryness, I want you to know this. When you call upon the name of the Lord, he always answers. When you ask Jesus to forgive you, his answer is always yes and amen. So the thing we're walking out of chapel tonight contemplating is what, what place does sin have in your life? And if given an opportunity like King Nebuchadnezzar to turn from it, what would you say to that? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this evening. We thank you so much for these students, for their time and for their attention. And Lord, I pray that, that this big question, and I know we shared some funny stories and talked about all kinds of crazy things. Lord, I pray that your word would be what we take out of this chapel tonight. And that that challenge of contemplating the place of sin in our lives, that it would be met with sober and clear thoughts around our lives. Father, we are responsible for our lives. No one else is. And so if we're far from you, would you invite us in? And if you have questions, would you provide a safe place for us to, answer, to have answers, or at least to wrestle? We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Yeah.